Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Saturday, July 11th, 2020. We delayed this morning getting started uh, getting a recording. I'm assuming because you were sitting down watching the the start of the second season of Amphibia, is that correct? Or? I think it's not on until tonight, actually. Oh. They're doing a new, um, I think it's on at like 8.30. That's right. That's right. But yes. Okay. But yes, I'm excited though. I'm ready. I, the DVR is set. I thought that the, the reason you'd really be excited about this was the story that broke just this past week about the special Gravity Falls tribute episode. Yeah. I'm excited. Listen, Jim, seeing a frog version of Grunkle Stan, you know, it lit my heart af- aflame, let me tell you. Well, the other part that I loved was that they're bringing back Seuss and they don't even pretend that it's not the same character, I guess. <laughs> you know, in the listing, it's just Frog Seuss. I-, I apologize for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about because it's been a while now. What, two years since Gravity Falls went off the air? Uh. The hole in my heart is still there, Jim. Yeah, I know, I know. But Amphibia creator and executive producer Matt Brawley, evidently, was a story artist and, and a director on Gravity Falls. And he actually took home an Annie for his work on the show. As the story goes, Matt always wanted to put a Gravity Falls tribute in Amphibia. And for the second season of the show, it, it's kind of a... A roadshow. The Plantar family is traveling to Newtopia. The New Newtopia mm-hmm. is that the, the am I getting the name yeah. right? So they get to have adventures along the way, and as they were making their way to Newtopia, they come across this creepy wax museum, sort of a roadside attraction, and evidently <laughs> that was their cue. They thought, well, it's not the Mystery Shack. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, the Curiosity Hut. There we go. The Curiosity <laughs> Hut. Just this whole notion of, will Alex get on board with this? Alex Hirsch, the creator of Gravity Falls, and also the gentleman who voiced Grunkle Stan and Seuss and, and the like. And not only, so they sent them a script, and not only did Alex get on board, but I guess they were thrilled that when they got him in the booth, he actually ad-libbed some great in-character Grunkle Stan lines for this this frog take on the character? I cannot wait. Well, the problem is we do have to wait because it's August 8th. We have to wait till August 8th till this episode of Amphibia airs. But on the other hand, if you are a Gravity Falls fan, just the other day I was over on YouTube. Now, when exactly did you do this live reading? I think that was right before the end of the show, right? I think it was right. I think that was at a press thing for the the end of the show, but I got to host. Mm-hmm. It was so exciting. A live reading of the the uh, very first episode. Mm-hmm. Alex was there. Kristen was there. Jason was there. And the composer was there doing live That's right. orchestration. That's right. Which was really fun. Yeah. It was a really fun. And it was so good to see my favorite person in the world, Jim Hill, in the room at the, at the little Burbank office uh, of the Disney Channel. And yeah, you can find it online right now. It's well worth seeking out. I don't think uh, you got on camera the moment when Kirsten discovered the Gravity Falls cupcakes. Uh, that, 
as happy as she was to be there with the the other cast members because it had been a while since they'd, they'd last been together. She would, she's, oh my god, this box of cupcakes, and I have to get this out of here. Did you actually manage to score any of the great the the specially made Gravity Falls cupcakes that day? I don't know. I was like backstage. I feel like I was back there for hours afterwards because I was talking to every cast member for. Um for coverage on what was then Disney Insider. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I ate a cupcake. All right. I hope I had lunch or something around there. You know, Don Cuco's is my favorite Mexican place, ah. which is right across the street from... That's that's my shout-out to a nice, fine Burbank establishment of Don Cuco's. Definitely <laughs> definitely check it out. <laughs> <laughs> and subtle. you gotta you got to give it that. So, okay. <laughs> Again, when you're, you're not eating Mexican food, you're also watching upcoming television. And you got to see a couple of episodes of Close Enough, right? Uh, which Oh, they're all, on, they're all on HBO Max. Yeah. I watched... I watched the first one. Did you see it yet? No, no. I had no idea about the whole history of of Close Enough with the, you know, it was supposed to initially air on TBS as part of a new animation block, but the show it was partnered with, with Cops, that Louis C.K. thing. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Evidently, once his sexual shenanigans got out there, when cops got taken down, the idea was it was an hour-long block of animation. And by the way, of the episodes you've seen, there are two 11-minute episodes back-to-back typically? Or? Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because I don't know if I've ever seen a adult-skewing mm-hmm. animated show with the two 11-minute segment format. Yeah. Now, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, but No, 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 I, no. I mean, it's kind of interesting because of course, we were just talking on the last show about Beavis and Butthead and the revival of that show and face it, that was kind of all over the map when it came to length of episodes and that sort of thing cuz you know, originally largely that show was basically sitting there watching Beavis and Butthead watch a video and occasionally walk outside and blow up frogs. (laughs) But there are eight episodes in total for season one of Close Enough on HBO Max, all of which became available this past Thursday, July 9th. But the final episode of the season is a full 22 minutes. So I wonder if... This is a test for a new format for the show? That's what I, yeah, that's what I was assuming mm-hmm. was that that would be the format going forward. But it, it was interesting seeing a adult show have a, the Cartoon Network mm-hmm. logo on it. You know, it says Cartoon Network Studios. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they could also repurpose this later as an adult swim there show. There you go. There you go. Yeah. But did you see that also that the Harley Quinn show is coming to HBO Max? Is it really? Yes, which makes me think that the DC Universe uh, service is not long for this Earth. But uh, yeah, so, uh, supposedly both seasons are coming to HBO Max by the end of the summer. Okay. So that is very exciting because that show is amazing. It is. It is. I, I love the writing. And have you seen how they handle Bane on that show? Yes. <laughs> It's worth tuning in just to watch Bane get frustrated. <laughs> Genuinely funny show, and I'm glad to hear him showing up at HBO. On the other yes. hand, let's talk about Young Love. Right. Now expanding the Oscar-winning short Hair Love, which you and I both really enjoyed. You know, love what Matt Cherry and his team did there. But I guess the problem is that it's one thing to do a perfectly charming and a beautifully crafted tiny little short, 
But to now hear that they're going to do, what, 12 episodes? The way they describe it, they're going to flesh out the characters that we originally met, met in Hair Love. So it's millennial parents, Stephen and uh-huh. Angela, uh, their daughter Zuri, and her pet cat, Rocky. And as they juggle their careers, marriage, parenthood, social issues, and multi-generational dynamics, all while striving to make a better life for themselves. Do you see what's not mentioned there, though, Jim? What is not mentioned there? The mother's uh, illness. (sighs) You know, that was the big, you know, cap of the short was that it looked like she was receiving maybe chemotherapy treatment or something and had lost her hair. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's sort of interesting that they don't mention that at all. As a fan of Matt Cherry for years, I'm... I'm willing to get behind this thing. More to the point, I mean, I love the fact that virtually on the heels of this announcement, he tweeted out, Dear Black voiceover actors, Young Love, a new animated series, which is based on the characters from her Oscar-winning animated short, is now open for business at HBO Max. So, Mm -hmm. you know, especially at this time when we have so much tumult about whether or not white actors should voice Chinese or Vietnamese or, or the like. I like that straight out the door, they're identifying this as an opportunity for black voice actors. Yeah. The other thing is that Issa Rae was the voice of the mom in the short. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if she's not coming back for this one. Because they don't mention her at all in the press release either. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. A lot of questions with no, this no, one, uh, uh, I know the, you're worried about it. Well, I just, I love the original Ice Age. But I feel like by the time we get to Ice Age 5... Everything that I I loved about the franchise has basically been destroyed. It's a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. In in fact, that kind of brings me to our next story about Chicken Run 2. Back on June 23rd, we found out that Mel Gibson was not coming back as the voice of Rocky. You know, and what's interesting is people tried to sort of pin that on the story that Winona Ryder was telling about him being at a party and right. saying something offensive. And at this point, I don't think there was a plan in place to bring back Mel Gibson. No. Just early this week, we had Julie and you and I were debating this. What did we decide? How do we pronounce his so name? Sawalha? Sawalha. Okay. Okay. Uh, who, yeah. who voiced Ginger in the original Chicken Run back in 2000. She posted on social media uh, using the hashtag ageism that she was devastated and saddened to learn that she she got an email from her agent and where she found out that she would not be voicing Ginger in the Chicken Run sequel, which I guess Ardman announced back in 2018. And I think we were talking recently about how Netflix picked this up. But she said that uh, the reason they gave is that my voice now sounds too old and they want a younger actress to reprise the role. And then she went on to say that usually in these circumstances, an actress is given the chance to do a voice test in order to determine the suitability of their pitch and tone. I, however, was not given this opportunity. And how do you feel about this, Drew? Well, I mean, the amount of actors that Disney has employed mm-hmm. until they literally mm-hmm. have one foot in the grave. Um, yeah. I won't name them, okay. of course, but okay. uh, it just seems very weird to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they could have a legitimate reason. And and also, if Rocky is going to be different, maybe they want a different ginger. I, I don't know what the thinking is, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm just excited that. It's happening, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you you mentioned the the elderly actor thing because Rob Polson, in his wonderful autobiography, talked about 
his very first gig, you know, sort of professional gig voicing a character for an Reed, and it was for the revival of the Jetsons. Because I guess the Jetsons only ran one season in primetime, and they needed at least 30 more episodes so they could do the 13 weeks without a rerun thing. Right. <laughs> and Rob just described how, you know, he's in this booth with, you know, Mel Blanc and um, George Halloran, I think, is the, the gentleman who voiced uh, George Jetson. It's just everybody's on oxygen. You know, everybody's got Coke bottle glasses that they're leaning in to read the scripts. And, you know, in a weird sort of way, Rob was both horrified but thrilled because as soon as the microfilm came on, everybody's age dropped away. They were the characters that they had voiced in the 1960s. You know, and he was like, wow, if I do this job right, I can do this till I'm in my 70s or 80s. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do feel bad for Julie. In fact, she talks about how she collaborated with Nick Park and Peter Lord to create right. the character of Ginger. But, okay, you voiced it for that film, but you don't own this character. You know, in the end, it's the people at Ardman who are going to decide what to do with this. And especially with, you know, Mel Gibson not coming back as Rocky. And and the other part, the story that's out there about this Chicken Run sequel is it picks up with the characters on that human-free island where they saw them left, where the chickens are now living. And it the story basically centers around Molly, the daughter of Ginger and Rocky. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so she had moved from sort of a center character to sort of a supporting role anyway. So, you know, especially given that we're talking about, it's been 20 years now since the chicken run initially came out and don't get me wrong it was it's still to this day is the top grossing stop motion animated film of all time which i don't know how high the bar is set there but i went into the theater and saw chicken run i enjoyed it but if you held a gun to my head now and asked me to describe the character of ginger and what she sounded like I couldn't. No kidding, Jim. <laughs> I couldn't do it, you know. So no, um, no. Anyway, since, since we're talking about stop motion, it's worth noting that uh, Wendell and Wild. Uh, this is a Key and Peel reunion project. Got announced back in uh, March of 2018. Have you heard anything about this recently? Because back then, this was supposed to be directed by Henry Selick. I think it's. That's still the case. Okay. Although you and I both know he is kind of a prickly pear. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't know what the status is now. I thought that they were already in production, but well, you've uncovered some some info. Well, yeah. Or actually, Alice has. Yes, so. that, that's my lovely daughter. Pointed out that somebody had posted a PA job for this film. That they're, they're looking for a production assistant who's willing to work 45 hours a week. For $18 an hour, uh, the job starts in July, is expected to run for a full year. Beyond that, all we have for information on Wendell and Wilde, that Kean Peel will be voicing a pair of demonic brothers. Sound, sounds on brand for them. Yeah, that, that, that it does. That it does. Also, as long as we're talking about magical creatures and that sort of thing, on, on an earlier show, Drew and I talked about, well, now it's got two names we did i guess it's aya and the witch or erwig 
and the Witch, which I guess is the original name yeah. of the book. So I guess, again, the, the levity folks in marketing are, you know, you know, it's like, okay, you know, what's going to get butts and seats here? And if, you know, if we stick with the name of the original Diane Wynne-Jones book, will, will that help sell this? And I guess they're, they're trying to make a connection because I guess Diane uh, Wynne-Jones also wrote the book that Howell's Moving Castle was based on. So I guess as right. we go to market this for the North American audience, that will become important. Anyway, I mentioned the North American audience because G-Kids acquired the North American theatrical rights. And supposedly, if we are ever allowed back in theaters, this will be released theatrically in North America in early 2021. Which I wonder if it will have a Oscar qualifying run. Oh, as well. Oh, that's an interesting. Because they kind of did the same thing with Weathering for You, where it was out for a couple of weeks, you know, in December, and then it got a, a wider release in the spring. I think they did the same thing with Your Name. So mm-hmm. I wonder if that'll happen. Although with the, you saw that the dates for the Oscars have been extended, right? Yeah. The yeah. qualifying dates. Mm-hmm. So. So it could open in 2021 and and just be in contention then. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But G-Kids does a great job. They always manage to squeeze in one of those Oscar nominations, which is always great. Mm-hmm. So I think that it could not be in better hands, I will say that. Just from the concept art here and this being Studio Ghibli's first ever 3D CG film. In fact, that was what was kind of interesting about this latest round of press in regard uh, to uh, Aya and the Witch or Earwig and the Witch, that the first time I'd seen it went from being a their first CG film to their first 3D CG film. So looking forward to this. Also, uh, something else I'm looking forward to is that Mr. Taylor got a chance to eyeball a couple of episodes of Wizards. Is that right? Or? It is right. I have to be careful about what I say because I'm embargoed, but I will, I will offer a tease. Let's say there Jen. we go. Okay, so okay, or we have to go off and confer about how much teasing Drew can do. But we'll be back in a sec. Before we get to the teasing, your wonderful Art of Onward book, which got totally screwed over by you know <laughs> what happened with the coronavirus and bookstores closing and and such but you know during the initial wave of publicity you were supposed to do a signing right yes i was supposed to do a signing at gallery nucleus which i don't know if you've ever been to jim but you would love it's got it's an amazing gallery in alhambra which is kind of over by pasadena mm-hmm. and they always have a ton of amazing art there and and gallery shows and stuff and they always do things with animators which is just so great Mm -hmm. you know it's so great to see these people's work sort of individual artistic expression but anyway they're amazing and they were doing a a signing of the book Mm -hmm. so it was the weekend of (laughs) that everything got shut down it was that the you know the weekend of the 13th mm-hmm. and i was kind of like yeah i'll go maybe whatever and then pixar basically wouldn't let the artists mm-hmm. come down um they just said it's not worth it you know we've got we've got movies we're working on that have to be finished yeah go figure so, so. you know I, I which i understand mm-hmm. it's totally understandable but what's great is that we're doing it online in a couple of weeks um so on july 25th you can pre-order your copy of the book on gallerynucleus.com mm-hmm. and 
I will. We will sign it. Me and and the two artists. It's a very long process of sending the books around, and I'm going to go into the gallery on a day where there are not a lot of people, and I'm just going to sign all the books then. Mm-hmm. And then we're doing a Q and an hour long Q and A about Onward and about the art of Onward on the website. So please sign up and get your book signed and see the Q and A. I mean, if you are. I guess if you aren't sick of hearing me talk about animation on every other platform that I do it on, but I promise it'll be really, really fun. And again, I mean, I just love hearing from the artists and the people that actually make these movies. And, uh, you know, it was just such a thrill to have such a small part of that sort of story. Mm. So I'm really excited and I hope you guys check it out. Mm. And again, that's the 25th of this month. Yes, cool. July twenty fifth. Okay, we will be sure to flog that. I know it's I know it's during Comic Con, which is not great <sighs> timing, but which Jesus, have you seen how many freaking panels there are <sighs> online? In the wonderful Comic Con tradition, how do we possibly cover this? And I was kind of hoping that, especially with this Comic Con at home thing, people would finally go, okay, let's let's record them, let's make it available on YouTube, let's. Not just shoot for the the one-shot audience. Right. So I'm kind of hoping that that finally sails through, but... It's going to be a lot, Jim. It's going to be a lot. Well, and uh, speaking of a lot, you got to talk with Kirk Weiss and Gary Trousdale. Yes. We've talked about these guys at length here, the directing team behind, well, first of all, Granny Command, then Beauty and the Beast, yep. then Hunchback, and then, of course, Atlantis, the, the Lost Expedition, which you just did that wonderful piece for, for sci-fi about, right? Uh, uh, for Collider. Collider, yep. yeah. And then, yes, and so this is a conversation. It's a We talked for an hour, actually, for a series on Collider called Collider Connected, where we just have these really long conversations. Mm-hmm. And by the time this interview, this episode goes up, my interview with Gindy Tartakovsky will also be up, which is incredibly fascinating, mm-hmm. and we will talk about in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, uh, I got a lot of great stories out of it. I mean, we talked a lot about Cranium Command, mm-hmm. actually, and how they got involved, and how they got involved in Beauty and the Beast. Because, as you and I were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. the, the Purdom version of the movie was screened in Florida Mm -hmm. around the same time the Cranium Command was opening. So I just said, did they watch the footage and then go to the Wonders of Life Pavilion and say, hey, how about these guys take over? (laughs) But it's a much more complicated story. Hmm. It's very interesting. Okay, You will hear all about it. But two anecdotes that I had never heard before Hmm. was that Kirk and Gary and Joe Ramp were, how do we say this diplomatically, Jim? Um, Asked to leave the production (laughs) of Rescuers Down Under when they objected to the fact that the young aboriginal boy in the original version of the movie was changed to a little white kid, a little blonde white kid. <sighs> Which, especially with everything that's going on now, I think is pretty pertinent. <sighs> Jeez. Yeah. So that happened. Okay. <laughs> and then the other thing that they told me was that Meatloaf was almost cast as Quasimodo. Given that we did have Cindy Lauper for a while, well, this was again when wasn't it Sam Rockwell? Was that the uh, when they they they? But that was back in the day when the the three characters were what Cheney, Quinn, and Lon. I want to say you know named after the three actors who. Uh, the idea was the Gargoyles were named after the three actors who played Quasimodo in the live action versions of. Um, well, I think they were first 
Lawton. That's yeah, right. Lawton something and something, and then they said, "Okay, let's let's change it to their first names." Yeah. I mean, it's, and then the first names got were still too hot button for the lawyers. Yep. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's it, it such a, oh, a weird situation. But yeah, that in that window to have Meatloaf and Cindy Lauper, and the idea that this was going to be a different musical, it was going to be different than Beauty and the Beast and and Aladdin. Did they talk about how close it came to happening or just... Yeah, I mean, he sang a version of Out There, I think. Oh. It made me wish that they had actually done like a Jim Steinman version of the of the show. But yeah. no, you know, they didn't take a lot of chances back then, Jim. I mean, I guess they still don't really take that many chances, but I just thought that was really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to say, we know Josh Gad listens, Jim. Uh, hello, Ava. How are you? There we go. Okay. Yes. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Meatloaf has a place in the new Hunchback is all I'm going to say. You know, that, that would be fun. He's still got it. He's still out there. Ooh. He's still rocking. I, so. I like the way you think. Okay. <laughs> all right. Now, uh, th- this brings us to the teasing portion of the show. This is Wizards, right? Which is the show that started as Troll Hunters, then continued as Three Below. Yes. How, how much of this have you seen, Jim? I, I get I, The weird thing is I can, I can see right now my copy of The Art of Troll Hunters. I, I remember paging through this and it's like, I have to see this show. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it, you know, in fact, I made this mistake initially. You're like, okay, so I will just, you know, oh, here's three below. I'll step into that. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. this is a very complex world. And yes, is Wizards a good place to step in or? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay. I mean, it, it sort of picks up. Mm-hmm. It picks up after both series, okay. which I think I, I can say. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're going to want to watch the first two shows Mm -hmm. to get ready for this one. And we have been supplied information that there could this could not actually be the end of the Troll Hunters saga. That there could be a movie or something after this. But this is only 10 episodes. Mm -hmm. It's called Wizards. I can say that it is set in the past, Mm -hmm. which is kind of fun. It has new characters, it has returning characters, and the animation just get, keeps getting better and better on these shows, and this one is no different. It's really beautiful, and I will be able to share more right before the, the show comes out, which is in early August. Mm-hmm. August 7th. August 7th, yes. Okay. So, okay. Jim, you've got some catching up to do. All right, all right. I, I will do my due diligence. <laughs> you know, just, I'm never leaving the house between having to catch up on uh, this week close enough and now got our first do the deep dive on Troll Hunters and then three below just to be ready for Wizards. But but again, I've got till August 7th, so all right, I can maybe get this done. But you talked about Kennedy. I did. My favorite. And we were pre-gaming. You mentioned we were talking a little bit about Popeye. He did that amazing sort of proof of concept for Sony that they, they put out online to sort of like, look, let's get the world's reaction to this. And and then Sony had that management change and you know the project didn't go forward. Yeah. But now he has another shot, which you, you were mentioning came at him kind of out of the blue, right? Yeah. It was just somebody contacted him from King Features, <laughs> which is like the rights holder. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this this deal is a lot more complicated because it's not like a studio is set up mm-hmm. to produce it yet or anything. But obviously they have an apparatus. They're doing the the Cuphead mm-hmm. show that is coming to Netflix, which 
they teased a couple weeks ago and looks really, really I good. I have to admit, I was I just saw that footage and was was kind of startled. The the very stuff that makes the game fun, that deep, rich Fleischer-like animation yeah. is still there. Yeah, I mean they they said it's not it's not actual like ink and mm-hmm. paint cell animation, but it's pretty darn close. Mm-hmm. I mean it's like the closest approximation in computerized form. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. But he says, you know, if they can figure out how to do it, he'll do it, mm-hmm. you know, but he's he's very anxious to get back to that world. There's a lot of us who have great affection for what Max Fleischer did back in the 20s and the 30s. And it's always made me a little crazy. The whole history is written by the victors thing. And these days, everybody talks about the history of animation in Hollywood as if it's the Walt Disney story. You know, Walt does the first cartoon with synchronized sound, and then he's the first to do color. And it's just, and it totally negates what Max Fleischer did. Walt's first real success in Hollywood, the Alice comedies, it's basically just an inversion of what Max Fleischer was doing with his Out of the Inkwell series. I mean, the Coco the Clown thing is character comes out of the Inkwell and is dancing and playing in the real world. The Alice comedies is literally a live girl in the cartoon world. I mean, it's just sort of like right. what Max Fleischer did, Walt flipped and made it his own. The weird thing is they had diametrically opposed takes on on animation. I mean, Walt made animated cartoons for families. Even when you look at something like, say, the skeleton dance, I mean, they're still cute dancing skeletons. Whereas uh, Max Fleischer, with the, the help of his brother Dave, he made cartoons for adults. I mean, you look at the, those Betty Boop cartoons, especially the ones that were made before the motion picture production code. You know, the, Will Hayes slammed that down in 1934. And they're pretty racy. I mean, they have amazing scores by people like Cab Calloway. Walt himself knew this. During this period, Walt was a, a very competitive guy. And it was like... The Mickey cartoons, you know, were doing well, but they just weren't getting the pop culture buzz that Betty Boop was. Fleischer Studio was based in New York City. So there was literally a hipper sensibility that came from being there at the the white hot center of pop culture. And coupled with the fact that Paramount Studios was picking up the tab for Fleischer's cartoons at the time, it's like, look, let's put this out with our adult films. Whereas, you know, Walt was in bed with the United Artists and it just didn't really have much say over, you know, where his shorts were going to end up. As we mentioned, Synchronized Sound, uh, you know, Walt, that's what puts him on the map in 1928. Four years later, uh, he's looking f- for, again, some way to step out from the pack when it comes to animated studios. And this is when Herb Kalmus approaches Walt. Herb Kalmus was was the the president of the Technicolor Motion Picture Company. Since 1922, the Technicolor Motion Picture Company had a process that used red and green filters that could create sort of the illusion of color footage. Uh, That's why, for example, if you watch the 1923 version of The Ten Commandments or the 1925 version of Phantom of the Opera, they actually have color scenes, you know, you know, full f- five and ten minute long sections of the film that are in color. But it's all done with this red and green filter thing. And uh, the problem is it's kind of a garish, harsh take on color. 
So the folks at Technicolor kept tinkering and tinkering, and they finally came up with a new three-strip version that really gave a more pleasing take on the color, a more easier-on-the-eyes uh, version. And so uh, Herb wants to introduce this to, to Hollywood, and he thinks the guy I need to get in bed with is Walt Disney because, you know, he makes these family-friendly shorts and they get placed in front of the United Artists movies and, you know, this would be the ideal way to promote Technicolor. And so he goes to Walt. Walt was working in a Silly Symphony, was two-thirds of the way through. Herb comes to him with this three-strip Technicolor and Walt actually stops production and redoes uh, Flower and Trees uh, in color. But basically, there wasn't a contract. There was a handshake. Flowers and Trees comes out in July of 1932. It it has this exclusive engagement at Grauman's Chinese. It's a huge sensation. The Disney Company doesn't actually sign a contract with Technicolor till August 30th, a full month later in 1932. And the contract then covers Flowers and Trees and three yet-to-be-made Silly Symphonies. It's not till those films are made that Disney signs a second contract with Technicolor. This one signed in September of 33. It was supposed to give Disney a five-year exclusive on using the three-strip camera for the production of animated films, but there was such an uproar that Technicolor almost immediately renegotiated the deal and made it a two-year deal. And and, and a lot of that was because of Max Fleischer, because it was one of these things where Max was like, all I can do is I can use this old two-color Technicolor process. And it's just sort of like, that's gonna not going to be enough to stand out against Disney. You know, I need, I need a way to be competitive again. And, and the way he was competitive is that he signed a really hot character. And this is about the time that the Popeye comic strip has taken off. So July of 33, we get a Betty Boop cartoon that's literally called Popeye the Sailor. And this is the first time the character's animated and Max is ready. The notion is that let's see how that does in its opening weekend. And it's like, and and it's a sensation. So the very first Popeye cartoon standalone, I Am What I Am, Drew, that opens in theaters 10 weeks later. Oh, wow. They just... Banged it out. and But again, it's classic Fleischer. It's aimed as an adult audience. In fact, what's interesting about those early Popeye shorts, you know, especially the stuff that's done prior to, again, the, the production code uh, being launched at 34. If you can get, you know, find those on YouTube and crank the volume, uh, you know, and, and listen, because a lot of the ad-libbed dialogue is very, very adult, but because it's it's Popeye kind of yammering, it tends to go over the heads of kids and, and that sort of thing. But if you're listening as an adult, it's like, he didn't just say what I think he said about olive oil, did he? <laughs> so Max, again, is still looking for a way to compete with Disney with its two-year thing on Technicolor. Max's team invents what's known as the stereoscopic rotary process. And Drew, have you ever seen any of these shorts from the 30s with the, the stereoscopic rotary process? I don't know. I mean, I know I know what that process is. Mm. I'm not sure if I've seen them from this period mm. or not, but I imagine they are both amazing, but also kind of rudimentary in their they are. They are. execution. Well, yeah. uh, basically to explain what, what the folks at, at Fleischer Studio did, 
If you're familiar with what Disney did with the old mill with the multiplane camera, Fleischer introduces a process in August of 34 where basically what he does is he takes an animation cell. It's photographed in such a way that it's in front of a three-dimensional model that's on a turntable. And so as a character is walking, what they can do is they can not only change the cell to show the character movement, but they can rotate the background. So you have this, you know, illusion of depth. So for example, the very first thing they use this for, uh, poor Cinderella, which was Betty Boop cartoon, in the foreground is animation of Cinderella in her coach going to the ball. But behind her is the forest and the countryside that the carriage is traveling through. And it's this amazing moment that sort of suddenly jumps out in the film because it's fully dimensional. And Popeye goes on to use the same process in June of 35. And meanwhile, Max Fleischer and Walt Disney are basically involved in an arms race. They both want to be the first animation studio in Hollywood to produce a full-length animated feature. And Walt got the courage to do that because a number, a number of exhibitors had, had done is they built a full hour-long program of Disney material by just grouping eight to ten silly symphonies together. And that became an hour-plus-long program. And the fact that people would sit in the theater and watch that much animation made Walt think, well, look, they'll do it for a full-length animated film. But here's the thing. This did not go unnoticed by Max Fleischer. He saw that there were exhibitors who were showing a whole bunch of Walt's silly symphonies together. said, what if we did something like that with Popeye? And so uh, November of 1936, uh, Max puts out a short. It, it's the first ever Popeye uh, color short because, of course, it's November of 36. And by this point, you know, Walt's lots of the exclusive Technicolor. But this thing is called Popeye the Sailor meets Sinbad the Sailor. It makes full use of the stereoptical thing. In fact, I, I strongly recommend folks jump on YouTube, go check this out because, A, it's a 20-minute long Popeye feature. It's a two-reeler. And it full color, and again, it has a couple of scenes, you know, particularly Popeye going through caves and wandering through uh, the countryside that, that really make use of the stereoptical thing. But the plan that Max had was that over the next two years, he was going to make two more of these, uh, these double-length Popeye color specials. And then the idea was that he was going to create some bridging material, five to 10 minutes of additional material. You were going to have Popeye and Olive Oil sitting together and they were reading a copy of the 101 Arabian Nights. And so that in between each of these 20 minute long Popeye color specials, you know, you'd cut back to them reading the book and, well, let's tell this story. The weird thing of it was, is if all had gone according to plan, this repurposing of these Popeye color specials would have basically arrived in theaters at the exact same time that Snow White was going into wide release. So Paramount would have been competitive. Paramount would have had its own full-length film in the market at the, you know, around the same time as Snow White came out. So in theory, folks who'd really enjoyed Snow White would have immediately pivoted and go, ooh, I want to go check out this Popeye movie. The only problem was in May of 1937, there was a strike at Fleischer Studios. And as opposed to the Disney strike in 41, which was just five weeks long, uh, the strike uh, at Fleischer Studios was five months long. And it, at one point, it led to a nationwide boycott of all Max Fleischer cartoons. 
And Max decided literally a month into the strike that I got to get out of town. I'm having these issues because the unions are so strong in New York. So I need to go someplace where the unions are weak. And at that point, that was Florida. So uh, June of 37, uh, he begins negotiating with the Miami Chamber of Commerce to move his animation studio down there. Now, mind you, by October, he settles his, you know, he settles the strike, but he's already making plans to move down to Florida. And November of that year, we get the, uh, the second of these Popeye color specials. Popeye the Sailor meets Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. Uh, but of course, the very next month is when Snow White the Seven Dwarfs opens in L.A., and then from there, that five months that Mike Max was tied up with the strike and you know his films were, were being boycotted around the country, he never recovered from it. Now, mind you, they do open a brand new studio in Miami in October of 1938. But you got to remember that in February of 38, that's when Snow White goes into wide release around the country and you know makes more money than God. And the really terrible part of this is that the, is they're already working on the third Popeye color special, the Aladdin and His Wonderful Lamp. But now Paramount is looking at all the money that Snow White is making, and they're like, we want one of those. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm making one. I've got the Popeye thing. I'll, it'll be ready to go at the end of this year. So no, no, no. We want something like Snow White. And not only that, we don't want, you know, it took Walt Disney three years to make this. We want hours and 18 months. I bring this up because you can actually go right now to YouTube. And if you search popular science Fleischer Studios, there is a featurette that Paramount Studios made that basically showcases the Miami studio. And you could actually watch them working on the third and final Popeye featurette in one shot of this documentary, you can see the three-dimensional model they made to use in production of this thing. But the pressure was so, so much pressure at this point from Paramount that they couldn't stop long enough to shoot in, in three dimensions. So this is the only one of the Popeye color specials that's done just against flat backgrounds and that sort of thing. And that finally opens in theaters of, of April of 39. But at this point, the plan of stringing them together and making a feature has been set aside. And by December of 39, we get Gulliver's Travels out, which, by the way, did quite well at the box office, enough so that Paramount then turns around and okays production of a second follow-up feature from Fleischer, a full-length called Hoppity Goes to Town. But in much the same way that, you know, we've talked in the past about how Pinocchio got tripped up by World War II with, with the closing of the European and Asian film markets. That's why Pinocchio on its original release lost over a million dollars for Disney. Hoppity, it was actually so much worse. Hoppity opened in theaters on December 5th, 1941. And two days later was Pearl Harbor. That pretty much sank Fleischer Studios. The problem is that these days, nobody ever talks about Fleischer as a serious competitor for Disney. That, you know, they were in harness together, basically chasing each other for breakthroughs in animation or at the box office. And this is why I'm kind of hoping, uh, especially with Kennedy working on this Popeye project, I hope, A, it really goes forward that, you know, King Features and, and Kennedy figure out how to actually make this film. But more to the point, I'm kind of hoping that it throws a spotlight back on Fleischer and that 
that people really do finally understand how important that studio was back in the day and, and how what a serious competitor it was and that, that Walt didn't do it all, folks. But that's a couple of years away at this point. At least, yeah. yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we are just, what, two weeks out now from your signing? Yes, I think like, yeah, like 15 days okay, or something. So, so, yeah. All right. So, yeah, get ready. So, July uh, 25th, uh, nu- yep. Nucleus Studio. And do they have. Gallery ha- Nucleus. Gallery yeah. Nucleus. Do they have to book those, you know, their, their books to get signed I, in advance? How does this work? I think so. I think uh, if you get the book signed, you get a, a Zoom link mm-hmm. or something. I think that's what it is. But. Okay. Uh, all that information is on the website. Listen, Jim, all I know, I got to show up for an hour. <laughs> I got to talk about this movie again, you know, after, after talking about it for a year straight. And then I got to get these books signed, Jim. That's all I know. Uh, that's all I'm committed to. Uh, you know, everything else, it's on the website. The fine print is there, but I think it's going to be really fun. And um, it's the only event that I had to do for the book, and it got canceled. So, you know, it was very sad for me. You know, I already have my copy, but I can send it to Alice. I will get my, my <laughs> autographed one set up. We were just talking about your interview with Kirk and Gary for, for Collider. Mm-hmm. But it would be remiss if we did not talk about who you're talking to just this week as part of your Light the Fuse podcast. This week, our first episode with the great Gary Rydstrom is out. And then next week, next Friday, is our, our part two. And you're going to really... You're going to love it, is all I want to say. It's really, really great. And next week, we get into a lot of the Pixar stuff. So, Jim, you'll have to listen next week, and then we'll, we can talk about you know what, what he reveals about Newt mm. and about some other things at Pixar. Um, so, it's very exciting. I'm, I'm really looking forward to people finally hearing it. Can't wait. Can't wait. Okay. Now, on our side of the fence... Disney Dish with Lentesta, we've been doing a lot of, uh, oh, Len's been doing a lot of, my God, the guy, you know, literally lives in the Disney theme parks these days, and I really hope he's wearing a mask. But yeah, check those out. Uh, Likewise, uh, we have uh, looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. We have Marvel Us Disney with Aaron Adams. We have Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. And uh, we got a new I Want That out. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Hill Media and on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. In the meantime, folks, do not miss out on this Gary Rydstrom stuff at Light the Fuse. And likewise, head on over to Gary Lillery Nucleus and sign up for this, this Zoom thing and the book signing, okay?